Hello and welcome to the Politically Speaking podcast. I'm Chris McDaniel, a political reporter with St. Louis Public Radio, and I am joined by Jason Rosenbaum of the St. Louis Beacon and Joe Manis of the St. Louis Beacon. And this is the Politically Speaking podcast where we are not starting off with talking about Todd Akin and Claire McCaskill. I know. That's it's going to be a little weird. It's a big leap for this. <laughs> yes, we're we're venturing into new territory, new uh, substantive frontiers. territory, <laughs> new <laughs> frontiers. <laughs> well, well, this Post-election. substantive territory. Let's talk a little bit about the state of the GOP in general. I mean, after the elections, the GOP did not perform well at all in statewide races. They, in Missouri, even though they did, we have to need, need to make that clear. They now have reached an historic level of representation in the state house. Exactly, they have 110. A veto-proof majority, veto in, both, majority. In, both, in both houses. Now, but. in the Senate, they lost a seat or two, but they're still a veto-proof majority. But still, the House. But this is kind of what's interesting. They did really well on the micro level, but then on the macro level, as far as statewide. Uh, they pretty much bombed. I mean, the only Republican left standing, other than Romney, who won, carried the state, although he didn't carry the country, was our friend Peter Kinder. Right, in and, the lieutenant governor's race. Right, and, and he did defeat Democrat uh, Susan Monte, despite her cute ad. But arguably it was because she didn't really have enough money to do the ad. But um, You know, and I've been working on a story about this. I, I talked to... Uh, former Senator Dan Forth and political scientist Ken Warren about this. How, and I would be interested, Joe, on your take okay. on this, how do you reconcile those two things of, you know, you completely have all of the power in the state legislature, but you can't win statewide races? How, how does that happen? Well, I think part of it is the way they uh, drew up the districts for the House and Senate. Uh the party in power, which in this case was the Republicans, even though it was the independent uh, group that drew them up, it really did end up being where uh, on the on the neighborhood level where you've got a lot of like-minded communities in different districts. But on the state level, I mean, this, this brings up the classic division in Missouri where you have uh, rural Missouri, which is one way, and you have urban Missouri, which is the other way. And then you have the suburbs, which tend to split the difference. And then you have, in this particular election, our infamous Aiken, I mean, Todd Aiken, Claire McCaskill contest, where McCaskill, um, I argue that um, she beat him by 15 percentage points and she beat him in rural Missouri. And I don't think that it was a bunch of older, and I've said this before, uh, older Republicans that were necessarily voting for her. I think she got a lot of women. I think she got uh, some of the moderates, but I think mainly the women. So she brought in a lot of people who then helped her create this wave. And then when she hit urban area where she already would be doing well, it became this huge wave. And I think her victory and the, to a lesser extent, uh, Jay Nixon's reelection for governor, his 12 point lead, then that created this uh, wave that I think helped the down-ballot people who may not have had as big a margin in rural Missouri, but most of them did okay, like Kander and um, Zweifel. They did okay in rural Missouri. They weren't leading. They were behind. But they weren't behind so much that when the wave from the urban areas came in, 
then it, then it really helped him. And there was very strong urban turnout. And I think that was something that Republicans had not expected nationally or in Missouri. And, and in my talks with Dr. Warren, he was saying that the Republican Party has to moderate its views if it's going to win in state in statewide races. They can they can maintain control of the legislature, no problem. But in order for them to win in a statewide race, you know, you have to cater to a larger, more diverse audience. Well, I think one of the things that they should consider, especially with the down ballot races, is looking, as I, I think I mentioned this last week, to looking some of these sitting state senators mm-hmm. that didn't run this time. A lot of them are probably more on the moderate prag- pragmatic scale that mm-hmm. Professor Warren is talking about. And they, a lot of them have experience raising a lot of money because state Senate races are inherently more expensive than state House races. And in some cases, they kind of have that experience in running in a kind of strange or difficult type of campaign that a lot of House members don't have. Now, that doesn't mean that House members should be excluded. Someone like House Speaker Tim Jones, for example, being the Speaker of the House and being able to raise money and having that kind of pseudo-state profile, although I'm not sure he's a household name yet, I'm sure he could run statewide no problem if he wanted to in 2016. But someone like the people that I brought up last week, Eric Schmidt, Kurt Schaefer, David Pierce, Tom Dempsey, who's going to be the pro tem, or a number of other people that have that experience, have that kind of fundraising ability, and have that kind of pragmatic moderate streak I think those could be the people that they look for in the next couple of years in the run-up to these elections. But I think, though, uh, I have this story that ran ran last week, and I was talking to Jones, among other Republicans, who are social conservatives, and he disagrees with the premise that they should have to moderate their views. I mean, because he's like, look, I have these positions on the Second Amendment, I have these positions— against abortion, and I'm not going to change those just because some people say I should to make it easier because these are what I believe, and I believe that a majority of Missourians believe that. But what what he argued, though, was that what the GOP failed to do was that he said we had too many candidates who didn't have enough either experience in the legislature or enough uh, name. And he contended that what the GOP needs to do is start building a bench of people who would Gradually, their profiles would be raised and that they would be spending uh, time with the donors, with the business community, with, I mean, basically the GOP base. and Grooming he, them for higher Grooming office. them for higher office. But wasn't that what was going to happen until December of 2011 or November? Peter Kinder was going to run for right. governor. Sure. Steve Tilley was going to run for lieutenant governor. Correct. There weren't. There was, I guess, Bill Stouffer and Scott Roop had already announced for Secretary of State. I think Shane Scholler did, too. They were, I think, still looking for Secretary—or not Secretary of State, Treasurer and Attorney General candidates. But it seemed like they had that bench. But Some of it. Some of it. But it kind of got shuffled when Kinder decided to run for re-election, and they needed a gubernatorial candidate— and then and it then kind of Tilly, caused a, it kind yeah. of caused a domino effect there. Well, so. and when Tilly decided to drop out for personal reasons, but even if that hadn't happened, mm-hmm. even if you had had Kinder running for governor, and if and if Tilly had stayed in the light gov race, and I argue that Tilly, because of the money he'd raised and and he had developed a name, would have at least uh, been a credible Republican candidate, fairly well known. But you, they still would have had the down ballot problem because they would have had the same type of people that they 
ended up running, and not that they were bad candidates. I'm not taking stands on the candidates, but what um, Jones and some others are arguing is that these people weren't really people who were ready and that it should have been more like the people you're talking about, uh, the senators and others who were well-known, but the bottom line is that they not need to be start building this bench because you look on the Democratic side, that whole statewide ticket, okay, there's already talk about, all right, everybody knows, you know, Attorney General Chris Coster plans on running for governor in 2016. Uh, uh, State Treasurer Clint Zweifel, since he survived this threat, he'll either run, the theory is he'll either run for governor against Coster or there's now talk that, no, he'll run for lieutenant governor. Right. So Isn't the, that like a step down, though? Not No, from Treasurer, not necessarily. I, th- I think— um, In terms of power, though. And and well, it depends how the lieutenant governor spot can be used. Um, well, you look at Kinder. I mean, there have been times when Kinder was very successful in using it to elevate a number of things, like the now defunct bike race and other things, and to raise his. Uh, yeah, but he hasn't profile. made the leap to something else yet. And the only no, person who has, in recent memory, was Mel Carnahan, who I guess was the treasurer. So maybe he's trying to emulate and that. Tom sort of Eagleton. Thing. And Tom, Tom Eagleton. Eagleton went from lieutenant governor of the U.S. Senate and became right. an icon. Well, I'm beginning to catch up on my sleep. I hope you guys are too. <laughs> Barely. But, but Jason, you're telling me we can already look forward to 2014? Well, I mean, we could already look forward to 2013. <laughs> One of our occasional podcast listeners, Damon Jones, has already announced that he's going to be running for the Casey Star triplet seat. But I know you're talking about yeah, the initiative. Alderman, yeah, Sixth Ward. Alderman, uh, yes. Right. Yes. But um, you're talking about the ballot initiatives that are kind of... that that. There was this group from Kirksville that is trying to add sexual orientation and gender identity to the state's non-discrimination statutes, which is, by the way, a mouthful to describe <laughs> right there. Just right. a lot of words. Right. But it got kind of a media pop because, you know, it's an interesting issue. But it's also a showcase that groups are already trying to get and scramble to get their, their initiatives on the ballot for 2014. And they kind of need to start early because – as we saw in the last election cycle, I know you don't like the the term cycle, but I'll just I'll just use that term. He's referring to me here. Um, uh, yeah, I guess the listeners can't see me gesture. Um, there were there were at least 143 petitions submitted to the Secretary of State's office, many and approved of, for circulation. Or yeah. many of them were right. were, were you know many of them were on the same topic, but it just shows that. There were just a, a handful of those. I mean, not even a handful. Two. Two. Two, two that two. made it to the ballot. and then That's three of, 1.5 percent. And then three of them were actually put on the ballot by the General Assembly. Right. So because of what it takes to get on the ballot and because of, you know, the expense and organizational difficulties that come with this, I mean, some of these groups pretty much have no choice but to start early like this. For this group in particular— I think I read uh, on the Columbia Tribune this group has about 4000 or $5,000 right now. I could hypothetically see them get funded by, you know, national LGBT group, maybe trial attorneys that kind of want that extra segment of business. But, I mean, the reality is if they want to get on the ballot, they need to start early and they have to start getting organized and they have to probably start getting funding sources to convince people not only to sign the petition, but to pass this. Yeah, because because your story includes some comments from Brad Ketcher, who's a uh, Democrat who's been key in a number of initiatives. And it was an article from cell. a few months ago, but it still was right. a salient point. Exactly, that it can take a million dollars or more and to get on the ballot. And because 
in many cases, they do end up having to hire people to t- circulate, to take the petitions around because they have to um, make sure that people follow pr- certain procedures, that they fill out things correctly and all that. So I think the the key point about this group wasn't so much what they're proposing, but the fact that, A, they were the first, mm-hmm. and B, that you know it was like, what, a day or t- just a few days after the election, and we're already talking about... Um, you know, building and trying to get stuff for 2014. And my, my theory is because there is only one statewide race in 2014, which is state auditor, and we don't really know how competitive that's going to be. Yeah, because there won't be a Senate race in 2014. Yeah. There, I would not be surprised if the big ticket things that election cycle, besides, you know, our personal pet legislative and local races, are these initiatives because there's kind of a void there that, you know— that were a big ticket initiative could get a lot of attention, not only something like what I just mentioned, but anything that retired financier Rex Singfeld has announced that he's interested in either um, curtailing teacher tenure, you know, getting rid of the income, income tax, tax and replacing it with a sale, a bigger sales tax. There are already ads released, in fact. Yes, yes. in uh, Kansas City. And, um, you know, those are the types of things that could be the main sources of contention. But you know, first you got to get it on the ballot, and and then you got to convince people that's a good idea. And something like either one of those things, tenure or taxes, that's going to embar em, encounter substantial opposition from from key interest groups. Well, and I think it's one of the reasons Singfeld's probably running some ads over there because I had heard when they were talking about trying to get the initiative about it, the income tax on the 2012 ballot, they were doing polling and they were doing some ads in Southwest Missouri, which would normally be the GOP base. And supposedly it was, they were getting killed. And finally, after spending untold amounts— I think about $2.5 million. Yeah, they figured that the public was too resistant. So by running some ads now, and he's keying it to some jobs being moved to Kansas City because Kansas— I mean, to Kansas because Kansas is changing their tax structure, that maybe this is a way to start to sway people— but it's smart in that if you're going to do that tactically, you got to start now. You can't be waiting until 2014 to be trying to sway people. Don't see any ads about Illinois threatening to take take jobs. <laughs> I wonder why that's the case. Now, this is an Illinois guy who grew up in Illinois, right? Illinois values. Okay. Illinois values. Uh, speaking of... Those values? Are Illinois values. I don't speaking know if that's, values, I don't I don't know if that's a proper segue. But. Well, we can talk about okay. Speaking of values, we have the values of you're a valuable are, asset to our team, Jason. Oh, and yes. you were and you were in, in Jefferson, Jefferson City. City. Yes, there's oh, the segue. Wow, yes. that is, that is <laughs> an elastic segue. Um, you know, I I made a tweet yesterday about how um the election congressional elections were the most unsurprising elections in recent memory in Missouri right. in Missouri no I mean I meant congressionally yesterday but I also can say that oh, for oh, for Missouri right, right. too because a lot of the main leadership yeah, yeah the main leaders okay, okay the big four so to right, speak right 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 okay so that's Tim Jones House Speaker Tom Dempsey Pro Tem both from the St Louis area by the way which yes. is which is notable which is notable mm-hmm. um. Joey Justice in Kansas City and Jay Cummel, uh, the minority leaders of the House and Senate, respectively. Um, I mean, that was all kind of assumed for a couple of months because there was no real chance of the legislature changing hands. And I think they had basically decided that ahead of time. There was one surprise in the sense that Ron Richard, the former 
Speaker of the House, was uh, elected as minority leader or majority leader. Sorry, in the Senate because he's Senate. now in the Senate. I didn't mean to impugn his majority status right there. Um, and it had been assumed that Mike Parson of Bolivar was actually going to take that role, but you know the the Post dispatched the, uh, this week noted that uh, there might have been some people that were wary of his connection with Tilly. Well, you and I had both heard yeah. unsubstantiated stuff about that. Yeah, and I've heard similar things to that. I haven't heard anything on the record about that. But still, it was kind of a surprise in the sense that I I kind of always assumed Richard would somehow become a member of leadership eventually because he in came the Senate, yeah. yeah, he came into the Senate with a lot of allies. If you noticed in 2010 he ran unopposed and he donated some money to some people who ended up winning. You know, people like Brian Nieves and Schaff and some people who were unsuccessful, like um, Brian Pratt in, right, in right. Kansas City. He also gave money to Parson, but obviously Parson's not <laughs> going to be voting for him in that instance. I mean, I don't know what what the vote ended up being, but, you know, Richard is already kind of accustomed to this high pressure, high profile role since he was House Speaker. I think it's possible, though not a certainty that he may be able to use this as a springboard to be pro tem in four years or so, though that's, again, not a certainty. Kevin Engler was majority leader, and he was not elected pro tem over the last two years. But it would be notable if he did become, I would say, one of the first people to be House Speaker and pro tem. I don't know if that's ever happened before, but it, it certainly shows that, you know, just he, he wasn't really out of leadership for long. And Tom Dempsey, who's the pro tem, he was a member of leadership in the House back in the mid-2000s as House Majority Leader. He became Senate Majority Leader. And I think a lot of these people who are accustomed to these leadership roles in the House and the Senate, or especially in the House that come over to the Senate, I think it, it's not surprising that they eventually rise in that level. Well, it shows also the turmoil that's created because of term limits. You know how, I mean, the chairs have to keep, the, the chairs are con- continue to be, who's sitting in them change because they have to. But the one, there's one constant in Jeff City right now, the other person that's used to pressure, which is uh, Governor Jay Nixon, uh, the top Democrat. And uh, Jason was at the news conference on Thursday. Mm-hmm. And basically it's sort of fuel. I mean, one of the angles of it, aside from other stuff he talked there about. There was a lot of things. There was about health insurance exchanges, about restructuring government, Ma- Margaret Donnelly leaving. But, but the but, key thing. But, there was, were, but, but Eli Yokely of Politico and Missouri News Horizon and Virginia Young of the Post-Dispatch asked Nixon whether he was going to run for something in 2006 or the questions were basically as such. Which the Beacon, frankly, we have mentioned numerous times over yeah. the last and I'm six sure, months that the governor right. and is I'm sure, on the shortlist. Yeah. So, I mean, he kind of demurred a little bit. And I think that, you know, there's some people who like Bill McClellan and Mike McMillan, the uh, coll- uh, not I was about to say the collector, but he's the licensed collector. Yes. He said at a public event that Nixon would make a very excellent president of the United States. So there is that speculation, but I think the other speculation is he might run for the U.S. Senate for the Again, third time. Against Roy Blunt, because Roy Blunt would be up for re-election in 2016, the Republican who won in 2010 by a huge margin over Robin Carnahan. Now, there had been some theories uh, that this was one of the reasons that Republicans had tried and failed to get a decent candidate to run against Nixon this time. It's the same reason they tried to oust Be- Coster as well. Because they want, yeah, right, exactly, because they knew, well, they, the they suspected, yeah, nip it in the bud. 
Now, there are some, though, who, th- who say that, well, the governor, while he is a high-profile Democrat, they're not sure that he really would be necessarily looking at president. Um, you're going to have a lot of east. Lofty. You're, you're going to have a lot of East Coast Democrats looking. But on the other hand, I'm sure people thought about that 20 years ago when this uh, lesser-known uh, governor from Arkansas decided to right. run. Yeah, but here's the difference. There in ni- in 1988, Bill Clinton already had a pseudo-national profile by being in the leadership of a lot of these Democratic entities and. Being the keynote speaker, was he the keynote speaker in 1988? No, or was he, the well, he was. Speaker? Yeah, but he almost killed it because yeah. he had a, a very long speech, which now people love to hear. But 24 years ago, they did. But not. Nixon <laughs> hasn't really done a lot of that. He's kind of just been kind of a Missouri-centric political figure, and I think if he wants to run for president, hypothetically, he's going to have to stretch out a little bit. But if he wanted to run for the U.S. Senate. I mean, there's not really a whole lot else he has to do because he's already a known commodity here. He's already run twice for the U.S. Senate and run statewide a bunch of times. And as I said last week, I know that sometimes we needle the governor a lot, but I think he has some formidable assets as a U.S. Senate candidate. But that being said, you know, Roy Blunt has some formidable assets as an incumbent. He has a pretty stout political organization. He, too, has run, I think, four or five times statewide. I may be missing that a couple there, but he has that experience that Nixon has. And, um, you know, he would be a tough person to dislodge, especially because he's kind of on the rise in U.S. Senate leadership, and he probably will have access to a lot of financial resources. Well, some of this is going to depend on what happens if the U.S. Senate ever gets back in GOP hands. Yeah. But I have two theories on Nixon. One is that uh, if there's an East Coast or somebody from the coast from the Democrats who does end up at the nominee, they're going to need somebody from the Midwest to with fill the mid- it. To, and with I the could, Midwest values. Exactly. That and have. I could see Nixon being on the top of the short list. And I've said this before mm-hmm. for uh, vice president. I and I and I really think that that is serious. The other thing, and I'm just going to throw this out there, throw okay, out. is that. The Obama administration is right now beginning to form their uh, new team for his second term. There already are rumors circulating. I don't know how serious they are that that some may be looking at Senator Claire McCaskill possibly for attorney general. If not now, a couple years from now, maybe if Holder decides to step down in two years, uh, the current uh, attorney general. This is just theory. But then the theory is... If she is uh, uh, agreed to take that, okay, the under Missouri law, the Senate seat would be filled by appointment from the governor until the next general election, which would be if it was done now, it'd be 2014. If it's not, if, if this happened after 2014, it'd be 2016. My theory, and I'm just putting it out there, and I know I'm going to get hit by this, but I think that if there is a potential that for whatever reason her seat is vacant, uh, and that Governor Nixon makes an appointment, I think he would do what uh, some other governors have done periodically and appoint himself uh, in the U.S. Senate because then he could run at that next election as an incumbent. I'm just throwing it out there. Wild card. Nixon That, that would be a wild card. <laughs> don't bash me. I'm just saying. Or he would appoint a placeholder, <laughs> sort of like what happened you know, in West Virginia or – that's true. He, he possibly not, might do that. But I think that he would consider, because this would probably be his last shot, and this would be a chance to uh, establish mm-hmm. his bona fides in D.C. And 
Are are just, you know maybe after his term he'll just retire to Jeffco and go hunting a lot. <laughs> like, and he is a good hunter. We all know that. <laughs> the limit during the first day of gun of dove hunting. He announced that. Well, on that <laughs> wild card note, we'll have to end it. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at, at @csmcdaniel. Jay Rosenbaum. And Jay Manis. You can find all of our stories at beyondnovember.org. We still have plenty of stories going up, even though the election's over. There's plenty of things to report about. Because it was beyond November, and yes, we are now? we are now. It, we're beyond the elections. We're not beyond November, <laughs> November yet. yet. <laughs> we'll, we'll get there in a couple of weeks. But uh, you can also find my work at stlpublicradio.org, and you can find Joe and Jason's work at stlbeacon.org. Um, we will be back possibly next week with a Hopefully. Thanksgiving Maybe. Episode with an early Thanksgiving Probably episode. on Tuesday or Wednesday. Yeah. Right. So we will be back next week with another Politically Speaking podcast. Because i got to drive all the way to Chesterfield to go to my <laughs> Thanksgiving. <sighs> I'm hopefully driving back to Louisville, but we'll find out. But until then, so long. So long. Gobble, gobble. <laughs>